yeah, I'd have I'd no idea. I didn't even know we were doing a podcast like 20 minutes ago, so I couldn't come up with a name. I'm feeling a little bit rusty. <clears throat> you are are you ready? Ready. Okay, well, you're, you're forgetting your tagline here. Let's go. Let's roll. <laughs> go ahead, just start. Let's roll. All right. Well, do you, <laughs> do you want me to make sure you know what number we're doing? Uh, good. We're number. I got it. Okay. I got it. Okay. I got it. Yep. Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor O'Malley, and my co-host, Bill Buckingham, who is a nice, refreshing, tall drink of sand. We've got a great show for you today. In the R&R segment, we cover Bill's top three grudges he's had over the years. Then in The Breakdown, as Squash starts to reopen, we revisit a long-talked-about yet not fully adopted subject, and that has to do with balls. We're talking squash balls and what's the right fit for you to try. Lastly, we are excited to launch a new reoccurring segment with the one and only Paul Johnson called Putting On Your PJs. Why? Well, you're just going to have to ask Bill or PJ for insights on that enigma. The first topic we cover in this segment is paying tribute to a legend of the sport who recently passed away, and that's Malcolm Wilstrop, whose impact on the game will be felt for generations as well as dearly missed by so many. A quick thank you again to our sponsor, Baya Sports. They are both Bill and mine's favorite squash shoe ever because they feel great and they look great. And one of those big no-nos is we do sometimes wear them outside the house just because we like them so much. So go to BayaSports.us and check out their newest Force X. That's B-I-A sports.us. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of The Breakdown with my co-host, Bill Buckingham. Bill, welcome back. Hey, Connor. Excited to do another podcast. Um kind of winging it a little bit our prolific guest that we had we were afraid to say his full name during the fan follow but now since we're going to roast him joey barrington was supposed to be our guest and he's ghosted us so we are on our own we had a hot topic to talk about we're looking for a little expertise from him instead you and i are going to lend our expertise to totally different topics than we're going to talk to joey about so we may or may not have done as much research as we normally do for this podcast i don't know if that's entirely accurate i think we were very well versed in this topic that we're bringing out of the back closet, so to speak. And we're using the original recipe here with the magic of... Yeah, just us two. Just us two. Remember those days when we used to get like 32 downloads for those episodes? That was awesome. So looking forward to going back to that. Just to kind of give the listeners a hint of the direction we're going to have today, you know, for our ratings and ranking segment or the R&R segment, we're going to talk about Bill's top three grudges. Then the second part, we're going to dive into as we're reopening and getting back into play. One big topic that I think has been out there, but still not talked about enough is using a variety of different kind of balls. So we're going to dig into that. So. Yeah, yeah. The return to squash. I actually played squash for the first time this morning in February, March, April, May. One year and four months, I hadn't picked up a squash racket and did so this morning for the first time with my regular group of two guys who I played with for years and years. And we finally got the band back together this morning. So it was interesting and a, a good lead in to the topic of balls, if you will. Excited to talk about that. And I'm just bitter enough to talk about grudges too. So we're all good. <laughs> well, let's start there. All right. So, and I think I picked up on this pretty early on when I was just getting to know you because you were sort of unlike someone I've ever met. <laughs> And it was hard to put a finger on, but I did start <laughs> noticing that you would sometimes, that an interaction would occur with this person or this group, right? And then all of a sudden you would make a hard and fast rule and you would stick to that rule regardless, forever, which we call grudges, right? And I think there are some things that there are some people grudges, right? There's probably more people grudges than thing grudges, but unfortunately for the podcast and it probably wouldn't be fair to call these people out because these people are out and walking about in the squash world quite a few of them and some are very well known and some are not so well known but well known in pockets put it this way the grudges affect me adversely anyways more so than they do the people that i'm grudging against because again as we talked about before most of the people don't even know i'm grudging against them but if like i name names yeah i feel like a sellout not naming names but i can't i just can't do it 
look, I get it. Now, question, if someone is listening to this and then they come up and they ask you, Bill, do you have a grudge against me? What's your answer going to be? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. No, I think they'd know just because I'm passive aggressive. That's my MO for grudges is I'm passive, like for, with people anyways, I'm just passive aggressive against them. And so they know. I mean, they know. That's interesting. So I must be in a different relationship category because I sometimes get aggressive aggressive. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 100% the case. So I've never held a grudge against you. I've hated on you. I've like despised you. I thought you were like one of the biggest idiots I've ever met it, all different times. All different times of our relationship, I've thought all, I've actually even liked you a couple of times. But yeah, a lot of times it's, yeah. And in the end, if I do step back and look at our relationship, most of the time that I've held grudges against you and was angry at you, I would say I could admittedly say it's probably 95% my fault. <laughs> right? That's big of me to be able to do that. That is very true. I will take that, Bill. And it has, I don't know if a roller coaster is the right way or just a merry-go-round. Either way, it's certainly a ride. Yeah, we were thrown into things that we probably, people, you and I shouldn't have been thrown into. Like, not really ill-prepared, but overwhelming circumstances. And you and I operate very, very differently. I am totally OCD and you are totally ADD. The D's don't meet and neither the, the D's shall meet or whatever the saying would be. So my OCD-ness with your ADD-ness mixed in was never a good recipe under pressurized circumstances, I would say. Did I just call out your ADD? Are you undiagnosed? I mean, I'd say I'm very creative and there are times that I'm able to jump around thoughts, but I still bring it together, Bill. Oh, for sure. For sure. As most ADD people do eventually. <laughs> You know, this actually just reminded me of one of the segments we were talking about offline. We just didn't have enough of them prepared here was like U.S. squash story time. And I think the first road trip to Philadelphia would be one we have to talk about. That is an all-timer where we were sent. Yeah, we should say at one point of the trip when you said to me, I'm going to go drive to a parking lot and go take a nap at like three in the afternoon. I was like, what? What are we doing? We've known each other for like a week. <laughs> yeah, that is a good story. It is a good story. And just the reason why I was taking a nap was because I was exhausted, not just like, let me peace out. No, I understand that. I didn't really grudge against you for that because that was such an overwhelming experience. I was scared to death and it was just like a wild day. And it was just, it was awful. It was an awful, awful, awful day. We're reasons we will explain later. I didn't know you well enough about how you operate within the car. Yeah, for sure. Bad passenger. Yeah. And I will give you full credit because I think, I don't know if we were on phones regularly then, but you definitely helped me get ahead of the... Don't talk on your phone and don't text and drive? Yeah. I give you full credit for that. When it comes to grudges, before we get to the actual grudges, the, the first grudge I held against you that I kind of still hold against you, and I bring it up occasionally, is 2007 US Open <laughs> at Roseland Ballroom. So I'm new to the organization. We weren't running the US Open at that point. Someone else was. I was thrown into it, as you were, and I was told that my role at the US Open would be to help out with the merchandise a little bit, you know, some merchandise that we had. And I said, sure, what, you know, whatever I need to do. He goes, yeah, you just make sure it's there. And the person who's going to be running the concession, he'll take care of everything, blah, 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 blah. The day the tournament starts, you tell me, here, and here's how you put it. You said, well, the gentleman who was going to run the merchandise stand can't. So, and your quote was, you're going to have to manage it more closely. So that was the first of the Connor business euphemisms that like, I didn't understand at all what they meant, but just, they sounded cool. And I thought Connor had it all on the ball. And I was like, yeah, manage it more closely. That sounds good to me. I'm all right with that. I'll do whatever I could do to help. What I didn't realize is manage it more closely meant that for seven straight days, I had to sit in a lobby of the Rosen ballroom with literally hundreds of sweatshirts. And it was October and it was like 95 degrees and nobody was buying these sweatshirts. And I had to stand there for literally from noon to, I felt like midnight every day and do nothing else. I couldn't watch squash. I couldn't do it. I literally had to sit, sit there and I would think we sold like two, maybe the whole week. I still have like four of them, but they're really nice, by the way. Just they are really nice. I still have a couple of them, but that was it. That was it. You said I had to manage it more closely and that meant me standing behind and basically doing the whole thing and doing all the merchandise by myself that we never sold because it was so hot and all we had was sweatshirts. But yes, that was my first grudgment against you. I stopped grudging against you after that. I still bring it up all the time. But Bill, it's totally fair. It's also, I think, <laughs> we were thrown into a lot of situations. I mean, I didn't think I was going to help run that event, period. 
Right. And I didn't think I was going to stand behind a desk selling sweatshirts. We were suddenly both thrusted into roles and responsibilities that were like, weren't explained at all to us prior yeah, to. I, I just remember walking down whatever 50 something street with boxes and boxes of sweatshirts, like in the hot October, like late September, October, New York City. And it's like, what the fuck am I doing? Holy shit. This is night. And this went on. It was like Groundhog's Day. It went on and on. We do still to do to this day. We use the term manage more closely a lot with each other. We always say that. Well, I'll manage it a little more closely. Seems funny now, but it was hell back then. But yeah, I did hold a grudge against you for that. And I think that's fair. Yeah. So that's it. I let it go. All right. So speaking of grudges, we did come up with some of your top three. So let's kick it off. The deli story. The deli grudge is probably my biggest grudge. And but I think I win because the deli went out of business. RIP the deli. It was like Joe's Deli or Rob's Deli. It was on 38th Street and 8th. And it was a little deli right near the office. And literally, you were there. Literally, it was it was very reasonable for New York. So Oh yeah. It was and we were getting sandwiches under five bucks, right? Yeah, sandwiches under five bucks, decent sandwiches too. And just like a little hole in the wall. And I'd go in every day, literally every day. I mean, Monday through Friday, I'd eat there. I'd go get my sandwich under five bucks, a bag of chips, a bottle of water, whatever. And like for New York, ridiculously low price and good food. And, the, you know, everything was fresh there. And they cut the deli meat, you know, underrated going to a deli, like the meat's not already cut. So it doesn't get dry and the moisture is still in there. It's still flavorful. They cut sandwiches to order, which is never eat at a deli that pre-cuts their meat. FYI, a little, uh, little PSA for you people out there. So one day, and this is after... Years of going into the deli. I go in. I had been in Connecticut for the weekend. And I was living in the city. We had the, I had the apartment in the city. And I had steak for dinner on Sunday. So I brought steak in to have for lunch. And I brought a roll in. And I just was going to have like, instead, just heat it up in the microwave and have like a steak and cheese, right? I brought everything I needed except for one thing. Didn't bring any cheese. So patron of this deli for years. Every day. I mean, again, not, I can't stress this enough. Every day. Didn't it get to the point you just gave the head nod? Yeah, you pretty much know what I want like each day of the week. Yeah, I was, a reg- I was a regular. Couldn't be more regular. Knew my name, everything. Go in there this one day and always go pre-lunch rush because I know, you know, you want to get involved. And I said, hey, you know, he goes, hey, what, you know, want your sandwich? I said, no, actually, you know what? Can I just get like a couple slices of cheese? And he said, no. And I said, why? He goes, we don't do that here. I said, I'm going to buy them. I said, could you just slice me up? I'll buy a quarter pound if you want. He goes, no, we're not a deli like that. I said, well, could you just give me two slices of cheese then? And he said, no. And I said, you're kidding me. And like, we got into like a spat and he's like, no, we don't do that. And I was like, I come in here every day for lunch. I'm just asking for two pieces of cheese. And he said, no, he was so vehemently no again. And I was like, fine, walked out. I walked out that day, Connor. I have never set foot in that deli again. And I worked across the street from that deli for another six years before it went out of business. And I walked and he saw me and I never stepped foot in that place. And I never would. I mean, over two slices. And thing is, it fucked me over more than it screwed him over because <laughs> I had to go to the lousy deli down the street that was charging like $11 for Yeah, it was more, less convenient and not as good. Yes, I walked farther away from the office for a less quality sandwich that cost twice as much. That's <laughs> That was my grudge. So yes, that was grudge one, but that was a big one. I think that maybe showed you, don't trifle with me. It definitely did. So that was the deli story. Then there's the O'Brien's. O'Brien's was fair. So the deli one, I still think is fair. I think it's fair. Two pieces of cheese. Just fucking slice the cheese. Excuse me. I don't mean to curse. I'm getting a little little angry just thinking about that guy right now. I wasn't glad he went out of business. So I'm pro small business. Just know that. But it doesn't seem like it's not that big of an ask. Were they really busy? No. I went before lunch. No, they weren't busy. They weren't it, The cheese is right there. The slicer is right there. It would have took six seconds. I would have given five bucks for it. But either way, I'm not, not going to get all emotional about it. O'Brien's. O'Brien's. Uh, bar on, and I always get the addresses wrong. because the is it, is it still in business? I don't know. I don't know. Because with, with pre-pandemic, pandemic, it was. pre-pandemic, it was still okay. business. Yeah. This incident occurred in probably 2005, maybe? Five or six? Yeah, early. Yeah, a while ago. Long time ago. Pre-pandemic, they were around. So, Brian's Little Dive Bar on the Upper East Side in the 80s, like on Second Avenue, one of those like frat boy bars that populated the Upper East Side all, were all over the place. Like There was Brady's, there was O'Brien's, there was like Dempsey's, there was a zillion of them. They're all pretty much the same bar, some dive than others. But O'Brien's was one we liked. They had dartboards and stuff, and their beer was relative. They had pitchers of beer, which was relatively cheap. So we'd go there. So went in there after a Yankee game, Yankee home opener. It was like a Tuesday afternoon. Most people were working, and we went there. We were pretty tipsy by the time we got there. Nothing out of control and just a small group of us. And we were playing music, probably playing the same songs over and over again, playing darts, having fun. 
And the bartender was being somewhat nice to us. It was a woman and she was, you know, not being overly friendly to us, but somewhat nice to us. And my buddies went to the bathroom and I was still at the bar and I bent down to literally tie my shoe. And while I tied my shoe, the woman was on the phone with, I'm assuming her boss or her friend. And she basically, and I, I try not to curse, but she said, yeah, yeah, not busy. Just a bunch of these effing Yankee assholes up here being idiots. Da, da, da. And I was like, and I said, I stood up and like, she was like a foot away from me. And she goes, she almost literally almost gasped. I just shrugged my shoulders and I was buzzed at that time. I wasn't drunk or anything. And I just said, can I get our check? And got the check. And my buddies walked out of the bathroom and I said, we're out of here. And they're like, why? What happened? I said, I'll tell you afterwards. I said, we're out of here. And paid the check. Tipped her maybe like 5%, 10%, but nothing like we would have and walked out. And she never apologized. She was like just a little stunned because she didn't realize. And I never stepped foot in that bar again. I have not to this day. And that, that was 2006. I walked by that bar a billion times. I lived on the Upper East Side until 2015 or 16 and never stepped foot in that bar again. So in this case, right, where it was one specific bartender, what would it take to, like, if she wasn't working there anymore, would you go back in? No, no, because she was employed there. So no, no, I don't think, I don't, just to say, I don't think there's anything that would bring me back short of, yeah, I don't think there is anything. They could have held Bill Buckingham Day and like named drinks after me and a sandwich after me. I don't think I'd go back. That was harsh. I mean, there are times that we've been in places with my friends and stuff where we deserve that kind of treatment, but we were actually being nice and we were being nice to her. You know, we had a tab going, but we were still like throwing her bills to tip. Like every time she bought us a picture, like, you know, we were being good customers and it was dead in there. I don't know what point she was trying to prove. There's nothing that could be done. She crossed that threshold. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was a cool little bar too. Again, another one of those things that hurt me more than it hurt them. I'm sure. Cause every time I walked by it, it was packed and Beers were cheap there. They had pictures. They had dartboards, and it was a cool place. So you know what? I hope they're still in business. I hope they're still in. I hope they didn't. I hope they didn't fall victim to the to the pandemic. So I pictured that girl there. Though she's probably like a you know, it's been there like twenty years now, smoking cigarettes every day, and I hope she's miserable. <laughs> Deep in the back of my mind, I hope she's alive, but I hope she's miserable. Yeah, alive, healthy, but miserable. Alive, healthy, but miserable, and ruining the day. I hope she thinks about it as often as I do. Which I doubt. I doubt, but I, you know, I hope she does. I doubt. But now, again, these are just the top three that we, we were talking about today. But rounding it out is another. This one's a little different. So this is one of the few grudges that I don't hold anymore. Okay. For various reasons. So I played squash with a Broadway actor several times, and his name is Hugh Jackman. Very unreliable about canceling and you know things like that. But okay, all cool. I mean, it was fun playing with him, and you know, he put it on his Instagram and all that, and it got all kinds of notoriety. All cool, all good. I had a fun time. Yeah, you're in the Daily Mail. It was written up. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. It's always fun, and I don't want to, I don't want to completely throw that relationship away because we do communicate regularly about playing squash, not you know, post pandemic. But, but there was a period we had played a few times, and he told me that he wanted to play in a tournament. He said, you know, as much fun as it is playing with you, Bill, I'd like to get into a competition. So I was like, no problem. There's a tournament coming up. And I, uh, I believe- Wasn't it oversubscribed? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I'm trying to think whether it was the Grand or the, I think it was the Grand, not the, not the Hyder. It was a New York tournament. So I entered him in the tournament under a fake name. I think I called him Hugh Johnson. Basically arranged where his draw would be played, like near where my draw would be played because he was going to be in a division lower. And just to make sure like he was comfortable and like I could show up there and kind of show him the ropes and that type of thing and make sure it all went well and had it all out and leading up to it and whole thing. Hey, here's you're going to be your start time, but you want to have a couple of hits beforehand. All good. All pumped up for it. And, you know, and I, I never, ever, ever make requests because I, you know, being working where we work. Yeah, we know what it's like on the other side. Yeah. Oh, I can't play my match until eight o'clock on Friday night. Could I play my match at seven o'clock on Saturday morning at my court? So I don't want to be that person, but I was that person just for this circumstance, which was fine. And the person who helped me out was fine also about it. So tournament starts on Friday. This is Wednesday. I ping him and say, hey, you're going to be playing here. And I think like, I don't remember, like you're going to be playing at the Yale Club at seven o'clock on Friday for your first match. If you win, you're playing Saturday here. If you lose, you're playing Saturday here. Oh, I'm in Paris. I left this morning. I can't play. I was like, what? Yeah, he goes, uh, uh, sorry, I flew to Paris. It might have been Paris. It might have been London. I forget. But either way, no notice. We had just literally just talked about this on Monday. Like, we're going to get the start times and all that kind of stuff. 
And so, yeah, just completely bailed on it with no good, you know, and granted, it was, I'm sure, a lot more important to me than it was to him. Well, obviously. <laughs> so I grudged against him. I wouldn't speak to him for six months. I wouldn't email him. But was he emailing you like, hey, Bill? No, of course not. <laughs> That's, it was a one-way grudge the whole way. Not sure. And the next time I played with him, like the grudge was never brought up. But, but just know for six months, six months the grudge was there. I would not speak. I would not speak to Hugh Jackman. Had he reached out to me, would I have like responded to him? The world will never know. But for six months, he was cheese boy. I grudged against him. I was like, what? I, I mean, I was really angry for the first week. Then I thought I was just cool having a grudge against him. Slashed by Wolverine, you know? Yeah, exactly. It also taught me a, a valuable lesson about like not trying to do stuff like that and arrange certain things for people and don't pull any strings because it's always going to come back and bite you and just say, hey, if you want to play, you play. But yeah, that was my most famous grudge. And again, only known to me. And I may have told you during the time, I forget. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I never told people that I played with him because it was like, that's all people wanted to talk about. And I was like... There's so much more to you. There's right? so much more to me. And this will be the last thing we mention about him because for some reason, we're, we're trying to get him on the show. And Gordon talks with his people. <laughs> Granted, he's going to say yes, and then we're going he's going to pull a Barrington on us and bail like last without, without telling us. But I had been in like working in squash for like 12 years or something like that. Wait, is this the origin story of how you met? No, 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 not at all. No, I was introduced to a, a kid, like a kid was like in high school. I forget. He was a pretty highly ranked junior. And we were at a tournament. And somebody who we work with, or maybe his coach introduced me to the kid. And he said, oh, this is Bill Buckingham. And the kid goes, oh, you're the guy who plays with Hugh Jackman. And I was like, really? I said, that's what I'm known for? I've been growing this sport for years. I mean, come on, dude. I'm known for more than that. It's like a blow to my ego. It's not what I'm known for, right? I'm known for more than that, Connor, aren't I? I mean, inside the industry, you would think that to the outside? This guy, kid was inside the industry. Yeah, no, I, I know. That's why it's perplexing, but it's Dude, also How about like, the fact that, like, it weren't for me, you wouldn't be playing in this tournament. This tournament might, even be, might not even exist. <laughs> or Mr. 24 guy? Like, what if he had said that? <laughs> what if he had said that? That would be fine. That would be fine. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just trying to distance myself from, you know, distance myself from that kind of thing. I'm more than that. Just know that. Is there a limit to how many grudges you can carry at one time, or is this... Yeah, it's like, it's like a ladder. You only could have, like, three concurrent challenges and three, three right. con accepting challenges. <laughs> no. The people grudges are no bounds. I would say right now I have people like severe people grudges against one, two. I'm, I'm thinking of their faces and their names right now. One, two, three, four, six people who like I'm like seriously grudging against like and those grudges will never go away. Nothing they could do. Nothing they could do. They wronged me. <laughs> Don't wrong me. <laughs> That's the lesson here. Don't wrong me. So that felt good to get off, off my chest. I haven't talked about my grudges. When you work from home, you can't like you don't see anybody. You know, with the pandemic, what's fun having a grudge if you can't see that person and grudge against them, you know, like from a distance across the street, across the room, you could, you could grudge. But Maybe some point down the line, we'll get some people grudges, but it'll be a while. It'll be a while. It'll be a while. It'll be a while. When we become the cutting edge podcast that we aspire to be, maybe we'll go down that path. Or the tell all book that you've been, you know, yeah, talking about. For sure. For sure. No name yet. Bill Buckingham. <laughs> grudge me. I like it. I like it. Well, let's go into the main breakdown. Let's talk some squash. Let's talk some squash. So we're talking about balls. Yeah. We're recording this on a Sunday, early afternoon. I played squash today. Breaking news. We'll do a little breaking news. First time since February of 2020. So a year and four, a year and five months almost since I actually stepped on a squash court and actually played squash this morning. Played with two of my buddies who I played with all the time before the pandemic. We played threes this morning. We played for like an hour and 15 minutes. Crazy. It was like being dropped in a foreign country, being on that squash court. Just absolutely nuts. My fitness was good because I've been exercising pretty regularly through the pandemic. So, and it's 4-0 fitness, you know, so our, we're all 4-0 players. And you're playing threes, so not... Playing threes. Played two games, single games before the third guy showed up. But playing threes, we drilled a little bit. Full court? Full court threes, but 4-0 rallies, you know. So if a rally went like four or five hits, that was a big one. Those guys had just started playing the week before. So we were playing like 3-0 players, basically. But it was fun. So we played with a single dot, the competition ball. We had, just before the pandemic, when we were playing regularly, we had switched pretty much full-time to the competition ball, the single dot. It was just more conducive to us. We're 4-0 players. We wanted to have rallies. The, the two-dot ball, even if it was mostly mental, the two-dot ball just wasn't sitting up for us enough. We couldn't get to anything in the front with the two-dot ball. Anybody hit with length would die in the back. The single dot changed that quite a bit where it made our rallies. We, we would, you know, still obviously bash it against the tin a lot and swing as hard as we could but 
mixed in there was some 10 hit rallies, which as you know, for a player of our level of 10 hit rallies, a huge rally if we each hit it 10 times. I mean, that's a big rally, huffing and puffing. So we played with the single dot today. I've always been a proponent of playing with a ball that fits your skill level. To us, the single dot is probably perfect for us. The, I think what is the intro ball is a little too bouncy for us. Wouldn't really be squash. So I think the competition ball was perfect. Well, and let's lay this out a little bit, because really that there's four main kind of balls. And for such a small sport, we have a lot of rules, a lot of different kind of courts. And even, yeah. I think I counted at one point that there's 13 different kinds of squash balls. But really, there's four main ones. And you actually wrote an article about this back in Squash Magazine in 2016. So as always, ahead of the curve. But really that there's four different kind of balls, that there's the intro ball, the progress ball, the one dot, otherwise known as a competition ball, and then the two dot or the championship ball. Is that what it's called? Championship? I didn't realize. I thought championship only if it was white. I don't know. Maybe did I make that well, up? I think it's called professional because I always thought like they, they had cool names for the other ones and then it came to the one that everybody used and they, people, everybody just, they just called it double dot. So my colleague Chris and I played, we're both of a similar level. We purposely brought all four of those balls to a court and played a five game match with those four balls. And the intro ball was what we started with. And that's the bigger ball, the one that's like a bit, bit larger than the other ones, very bouncy. And we played a game and... We discovered what squash was when we played that game. Because again, as our level, three, four hits, stop, three, four hits, stop, bash a couple into the tin, stop before you know it, especially in par 11, you walk off the court, game one happens in two and a half minutes and you walk off and you're not getting the full squash experience that everybody talks about. So with that ball, we played a game and we played, it opened our eyes to what really like squash fitness is. And we were both very fit at the time. I think we had just literally like the week before done a half marathon down in Brooklyn. So I think fitness was not an issue for us, but holy cow, the biggest difference we saw in those balls was getting the ball up front. The ball stayed up. So like you could get to the ball. If you wanted to give effort, you could. And, and again, as it turned out, like it was embarrassing if you didn't give effort because the ball sat up so much. So you felt like you had to run after it because like not with the double dot where the ball just died. And you're like, fuck that. I'm not running after that. I'm not getting it with this. We went after everything. So the balls up front was the biggest difference. And the second biggest difference was when the ball would hit the back wall, it would sit up. You know, when it would bounce, it would bounce, it would sit up more. So you could get the balls in the back also. So you could more or less do, you know, have a rally with rails, which guys of our level never do, right? We usually hit one or two short balls and somebody either puts it away or tins it. But with this, we were having some rallies and we were like literally huffing and puffing, hands on shorts, really struggling. Like, holy cow, this is an effort. And it was a blast. It was a blast. The ball ricocheted a little bit. It skipped a little bit, which was a problem. The bounces weren't that true a lot of times, but it was a blast. It was just different because the ball was so big. That was fun. We went from that and we went to the next ball. It was, I believe it's called the progress ball. We went there and we realized that it didn't come quite as far back, if you like hit a low drive, it wouldn't come back to you as much as the intro ball would. So you had to work a little bit harder. But what it, it did is it made us slow down a little bit. We kind of like started taking our time with that ball because it would bounce. So if you didn't, you didn't have to like with the double dot, it's like rush, 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 rush. You know, when you're our level, you rush after the ball, you swing at it as hard as you can. With this ball, it kind of like taught us that like, hey, get to the ball, let the ball do its thing, let it bounce against the wall, slow down. That was probably the most fun we had was with that ball because it didn't ricochet as much as the intro ball. It was a fun game of squash and it taught us, hey, you know what? Maybe in like with a regular ball, we don't have to rush around. If we get the ball warm enough and we improve our strokes, maybe now I see why we're always marveling at the pros when we say, wow, they're not even running. Like, and we see guys switching on and off at the tee and how they kind of like take two steps to the back wall. And it looks like, wow, they're not even moving. They're like just, just moving so slowly. And we kind of, for the first time, saw why they're like that because, you know, they could hit a double dot like we were hitting that ball. The intro ball is 12% larger than the standard ball, but it gets 40% longer hang time. Uh -huh. Yeah, and you could tell too. And then the progress ball is 6% larger than the standard ball, but gets 20% longer hang time. Yeah, we saw the difference. I think at that point we were getting used to it. So then we went on to the single dot for game three. We did the single dot and <laughs> the size of the ball, ma you know, size matters, as they say, because I recall this, it was like we had never played squash before. We were just like hitting it as hard as we can. We just like were banging it into the tin. We had no idea. It was like, we couldn't even see the ball. It was so small. I was like, how do people play with this thing? It's so small. 
after playing with those two larger balls. It was a little bit embarrassing. It just was not fun. We just kind of died and didn't play well. We then, knowing that we, being geniuses that we are, and realized that we're going to play five games and we only had four balls, we did another game with that ball. And then we got adjusted to it. And we're kind of used to it being small and started having a, a really, really good rally to the point, as I think I wrote in the article, there were people outside watching us. And, you know, we didn't know whether that was, it was their court time coming up or they actually thought we were playing. Pretty. Either way, there was a crowd forming. Either way, there was a crowd forming for sure. And like marveling at our skill. Yeah. And had a great fourth game. We were shot after the fourth game. So we walked off the court and we like, yo, well, you know, we have to play with the double dot just to see what the difference is. And I think because we warmed up the double dot for a long time. And I think because we had been playing and we had been like taking our time because we were getting used to the quicker, like the balls that sat up more, we played a much smarter game with the double dot. The biggest difference is, again, was up front. The ball would just die up front. And I noticed that the last tournament that I played was the grand open, like in the last grand open, they had like 19 or did they have 20? No, they, they wouldn't have had 20. So 19, I put in the grand open and I had been playing exclusively with a single dot ball in the lead up to that. Like since the previous term, I'd been doing nothing but single dot and we have to play the grand open in a dot with a double dot. And I won my first match despite, you know, who knows why I won my, because it's the first match of the grand open. You, you never know who you're going to play, but the second match where the kid knew how to play the ball short, I couldn't get to anything. I just couldn't get to them because they were just dying. And I was so used to playing the single dot where I could get to it and I could not get to the double dot ball. And it was, I mean, it was a horrible match. I'm sure it was a horrible match for him too, except that he, that he kicked my butt. But getting the balls up front, I think are the biggest difference between the double dots, the single dots, the competition is being able to get to something. Like if you're pinned to the back and somebody hits a short ball, instead of giving up on it, like you do with the double dot, you could actually give it a shot and try to get it. The one dot or the competition ball gets 10% longer hang time than the pro ball. The other part of this equation, though, that I don't think has been explored as much, so at least that there are these kind of different ball options, has really been the 10. And what we're used to, because the same difference that you're spelling out there, of like it's really tough to go up there and get that ball because it just dies so much more. That's why the professionals play with a lower 10. And that makes all the difference instead of a 19 inch 10 goes down to a 17 inch 10 and that extends the court so much more than you would think but you know i'd be curious and we've talked about this on another episode about increasing the 10 size to maybe we got up to 21 inches or we go up to like 30 inch 10 or something like that that you could raise it up and i think that there's an element here of mixing and matching whether it's the balls and or the 10 size to really make it more enjoyable and mixing and matching. And I use this analogy sometimes, and I think you and I have talked about this, within golf, that there's such a variety of tee positions. Yeah, play the tee that you belong on. We, we played uh, last week down at Philly Cricket Club, and we played from the 60, 500-yard tees, which is as much course as I could play. And we were looking back. I mean, I was anyways looking back at the back tees, and I was like, I wouldn't have fun. I mean, would, you would not have fun playing those tees. You have to carry the ball 280 just to get it into the fairway. And there's so much trouble you could get into just by having ca forced carries over things. Just not a fun way to play golf. So, yeah, from day to day, playing squash and with different tin heights, different balls and everything, for sure. I mean, it's a no-brainer that it would increase the enjoyment for people. I'm very surprised that more leagues don't play with a single dot ball. More adult leagues don't play with a single dot ball because you, you watch a lot of adult league play. When, once you get below the 5-0 level, it's not what squash is meant to be. Squash is meant to be arduous. It's supposed to meant to be attritional, meant to be fitness oriented. And at that level, it's just not. It's more of just skill-based. If you could hit the ball in the proper direction, you're most likely going to win at that level because fitness is not a factor because the balls just die and nobody's going to get to it. Yeah, it's been interesting, and I don't think this has been changed at the world level or the, the national governing body level, other than trying to bring more awareness of these kind of different balls. You know, so we have a problem of like awareness as well as access to the, these different kinds of balls, but it would be interesting if, let's say, U.S. squash was a sanction, like all league play for 4-0 below is play with the single deck. It is sanctioned. You could use whatever ball you want. It is sanctionable. What I'm saying is, no, you just switch it to like you have to play with the single deck. Yeah, I mean, it would be the way to go for sure. I think it would make squash much more enjoyable for people at that level. So thinking about it from beyond, you know, the club level, the growth is the pro level. So obviously the ball, the bounce of the ball, I don't think there's an issue with it. And those guys, you know, playing at their skill level, playing with the double dot is fine. 
and it kind of dawned on me when watching some things on TV, you know, flipping around the channels during the pandemic and watching a lot of sports is, you know, there's the two sport, the one sport of the main four sports that is the least popular by far is hockey, baseball, football, basketball, hockey. Hockey gets the lowest ratings. It's got the least amount of fans. It's got, you know, the most money issues, just a myriad of issues. And it's always talked about is because you can't see the puck. And it's just a hard because you would think that hockey would be like the most popular sport because it's so fun to watch. Such high pace, it's fast, it's dynamic, dynamic, it's high pace. The edge of your seat of hockey playoffs of like your season could end on a ricochet. It's just like throw, you know, your heart in your mouth or throat in your heart, whatever the whatever the saying is. But you can't see the puck. And so in squash, that's always been the issue, right? Right. Watching although squash TV is much better than it used to be. You can't see the ball and you can't see the ball well. So is there a reason? Can squash go with a bigger ball that has the same bounce as the two dot? What would be the harm in that? That you could see the ball and like no matter what where you're watching from, you could see the ball. Is there an issue with that? Maybe this is where it shows I'm too close to it because if you talk to people that are diehard hockey fans, they're like, that's not what you're looking for sometimes. With the the level of HD on squash TV and the different camera angles that they cut to, I haven't seen that as a big of a problem, but I could understand that others would I think that there's maybe and and I uh, this feels uh, sort of not stupid but gimmicky where I know the NHL experimented with, <laughs> with the like the tracking device on that which was just universally terrible that makes the game unwatchable like where it's too busy so without going that direction but like would a higher level contrast of a ball make a difference I do think size would impact. So tell me, in your expert opinion, why would making the ball bigger, even though it's the same bounce, it has to be the same bounce because that's key. You can't make it bouncier. You can't make it less bouncier. The bounce is integral. Why having a bigger ball and squash on the pro level, what would be the issue? Because I just don't think you could achieve it. But if you could, if you could engineer a ball that has the same bounce, a larger double, would that be okay? The answer is no, I don't think so. Because like you'd be able to hit the nick more easily. Like it's a bigger surface area that like these pros already right now can hit the nick with such high level consistency that a bigger ball would just likely be able to hit the nick more, the surface area. I haven't thought about that at all. Is that true? Is there physics behind that? Or are you just saying that? I would say that it's increased surface area that you could like more accurately put it down that you're grabbing on the more. I really wish I was smarter than I am and I could refute that, but I can't. You could be right. I mean, this could be Connor saying something just like manage more closely. And I was like, think it's a good <laughs> thing. And you could be saying this and it could be a hundred percent wrong, but I can't refute it. That's what I would first guess. So can we do something about the Knicks to like, I mean, can adjustments be made so that wouldn't happen then if your surface ratio thing, dynamic thing you're throwing out at me happens to be true? I don't know. If making the ball bigger, if that could be something that could like increase the enjoyment of pro squash for the average fan who may or may not be a, you know, the diehards are going to watch it, but for the, you know, to show it to somebody new, that's the first thing they always say is like, I can't see the ball, you know, ball so small. I still don't know if that's the leading problem to solve, right? Like I still think like refereeing. A hundred percent. There's other problems for sure, but I'm just curious whether that is something that's ever been thought about, whether that's pot, whether it's possible or not. I know that there's been more R&D. I don't know to what level or what extent, but on the, so contrast is the biggest thing from visibility. So that's why right now it's like on the glass courts, you use the white ball versus a black ball because it's a higher level contrast. Like, could you have a different dye that it's a pink ball? That might work, right? So there's different ball coloration. I think that might help, but I still think, Putting more in, and which has been done, putting more into like the camera technology, which has been very helpful, and then even increasing the fan exposure. Like right now, we haven't had total like fan exposure to this, you know. So it's a good question, though. It struck me when I was watching some of the matches that were on Squash TV from England, the whatever the Bell series that they did with some of the English players, because the camera technology wasn't as solid as it is during PSA TV. And it was very hard to follow the ball a lot of times. One of the things then might be, and I don't know how much you've done this, so check out Squash 57 because mm-hmm. there are some really high caliber matches, which is using a ball on a right. squash court and right. see if you, you still have that same issue. D- yeah, I'm not sure I want to go that big. I know what Squash 57 is. That's more rac- racquetball size. That's a little bit too big. And the rackets are different, right? Watch that and see if you have a ball issue because like that would, right, we're talking about the same court. And if that visibility is there and it, the problem is solved, then you, what you just outline is a 
an issue might go down, right? I'm hoping people smarter than me with more influence in the game than me have thought of that and said, hey, hey, look at this. This is much more fun to watch. Let's figure out a way to, to get squashed to use a ball that's bigger. So hopefully somebody's doing that. But along those lines, so Squash 57, which is the other name for racquetball over in England, it's a almost a racquetball size ball. You're using a racquetball racket, but you're playing on a squash court. This has propelled England squash and racquetball to maintain relevancy that racquetball has exploded and or squash 57. They're kind of interchangeable. And the squash 57 just means that the ball is 57 millimeters diameter. I had no idea what that's what that meant. Very creative with their naming nomenclature. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that goes into a kind of like a, a fifth ball option for people. And I think when we're talking about, you know, especially here in America, when we're saying, is it racquetball versus squash? Now I like to say, it's like, well, if you build a squash court, you can play racquetball in there too. Right. And I do think that there's a level of increased enjoyment, especially from racquetball players, because after a while, it just feels more like checkers and versus squash being more like chess that there adds a new dimension. You're going to throw the chess at 150 miles an hour at me? You know how much I love that. I was not because I know how much you love that. So I wasn't going to go there, but I do think that it's a metaphor. 100%. I mean, that's when I work at squash, that's the first thing I look at. I always say, man, chess at 150 miles an hour is exactly what it reminds me of. I'm just describing of racquetball and squash, the difference is checkers and chess. Are you not going to give that? I am not going to give that. It's so dumb. How do you describe the difference between racquetball and... The boundaries are different. No, but if you have to give an analogy... I don't have one. I mean, it's two different sports. The ball ricochets. I don't know. I don't have one. Softball and baseball? Soft, no, I, but checkers and chess is stupid. I, I'm not going to go down this path. I'm not in the mood to argue. I'll have a grudge against you if I do that. But yeah, it's the dumbest marketing ploy ever, checkers and chess, be, com, comparing squash. Number one, it sounds elitist. That's number one. So if like you ask somebody like, well, you tell somebody like you work in squash, you play squash and they say, oh, what's what's the difference between squash and racquetball? And you say, oh, squash is chess and racquetball is checkers. They like immediately say what a douche you are, in my opinion. IMO, as they say on the streets. Sorry about that. <laughs> the language has been pretty abysmal today, huh? We're losing steam on this one. So, <laughs> well, we are. Okay. <laughs> we are. <laughs> exactly the case. So, we've made some progress, if you will. Little, well, again, ball. going back to for those who haven't yet been able to get back on the squash court and ends so up coming back, I think that it's an opportunity to kind of, we'd encourage just trying different kind of balls. It's not easy playing with a mask at 100%, but getting back on the squash court this morning was like a joy. It was a joy to be back there playing and running around and whatnot. Very fearful about what I was going to pull, what knee ligament was going to pop, what hamstring was going to tweak, and knock on wood, none of that happened. Tomorrow morning, I'm fearful about how I'm going to feel when I wake up, but it was so much fun to be back playing again. So I'd say it was worth the wait. Nothing was worth that wait, but it was. I mean, just something that you basically did two, three times a week for years and years and years and years. And that like stopped for a year and a half. And to be back playing again was just so much fun. And I still stink. I mean, I stink bad. You mean in terms of caliber? Instead, it's a, yeah. Not odor. No, odor, odor. No, I smelled great. I, as always, I smelled great. Oh, oh, no, it was the biggest difference because I've grown my hair out since I last played squash. More sweat or less sweat? Not the sweat factor. I need a headband, like for real. Yeah. Yeah. I never had to wear a headband before. And like, I'm, I'm running like that. My hair's in my eyes and stuff like that. I felt like a young Bjorn Borg. My headband. I've always been a headband fan. Yeah. I've never had headbands before because my hair's always been short, but now it's long. So I'm very excited to go to the store and purchase some headbands. So that has come out of it. And doubles, you've never really gotten an opportunity to play much hardball doubles? Yeah. No, I, I figure when I'm 80, I'll start that. Yeah. You know, when I can't move and I really don't need exercise anymore, I'll start playing doubles. Shout out Graham Bassett. Well, I'm a huge doubles fan. I could tell. I could tell by looking at you. (laughs) (laughs) I could tell by looking at the fudge sundae that you're eating right now on Sunday afternoons. The doubles is is your game. No, no. I love the doubles game. Love it. Love it. It's great. It's great. You know, my biggest fear is that doubles is going to be in the Olympics. Can you imagine after all this doubles got into the Olympics, like hardball doubles even? That'd be great. I do think there should be a doubles component. Uh, my grudge against the Olympic Committee would be huge if that was the case. But it's like, squash not getting the Olympics. Okay, all that's behind it is, you know what? It's water under the bridge a lot at this point. You could shout at the clouds or yell, get off my lawn or whatever it is old men do to complain about things that are never going to change. If after all this, squash doubles is in the Olympics, hardball squash doubles is in the Olympics, that would be my biggest grudge, I think. Are you saying in this hypothetical scenario, 
that softball singles is not in the Olympics. Yes, and just hardball doubles. Just hardball doubles. Yes, it's going to happen too. You know, it's going to happen. I think it would be amazing. Either way, it's still way in. It's still squashed. Any last words, Bill? Get out and play. Uh, use the ball that is suitable to you. We played this morning and had so much fun using a, a single dot. No sense. Don't be like, hey, the pros are using a double dot. We need to use one too because it's a tough enough sport anyways and to use the wrong equipment. As Jack Nicholas used to say, you know, in the early days, and he'd, he'd like have to go to the British Open and they'd take like a steamship to go over there or like a long plane ride. And he'd say, hey, did you ever think about not having to haul your clubs and just get clubs over there? And he said, it's a hard enough sport to play with your own sticks, never mind with somebody else's. Wow. You may have said that. I may have made that up. That was a good last word to go on. All right. All right, Bill. All right, Connor. Wait, 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 wait. There's more? We are now introducing a new segment here on The Breakdown. It is with a fan favorite, Paul Johnson. Take a listen. Okay. Uh, Not to steal Connor's line, but welcome, welcome, welcome. How was that, Connor? This is the first in a segment we have titled Putting on Your PJs, a reoccurring segment starring Paul Johnson, PJ Squash, star of many podcasts that we've listened to over the last few weeks. But this is going to be a regular segment. We've come up with the name on the fly, Putting on Your PJs. Um, Connor's not a fan of it. I made it up. So, of course, I'm a fan of it. And PJ absolutely lit up when he heard it. So that is what we're going to stick with. So a little lighthearted here. Um, the, the subject we're going to talk about is not so lighthearted. But before we do that, PJ, I just want to know, number one, thank you for showing up to your segment. Unlike your partner in crime, and we'll name him now, Joey Barrington, who was supposed to be the main guest of the early portion of the podcast where we had laid out a whole series of subjects that he is learned on, basically trying to up his star quality because you know there's not a lot of squash on, on right now. And so people are like, Who's that guy with the hair bun and that used to do squash TV? So we're trying to get him back into circulation. He ghosted us, which is ironic considering, didn't his father invent ghosting? He's did invent ghosting. That's a very true story. Yeah. I'm not even remotely surprised that Joey's ghosted you. Uh, He's still very, very bitter about the situation where you stole food off of his plate. Um, He's made that very clear. And I'm actually interested to see whether you will ever get him on a podcast. Well, he said, I'm on. Let's do it. I outlined what we wanted. And you know, it's Joey. So we made it Joey centric. We said, you could talk about yourself. You could talk (laughs) about your dad. You could talk about whatever you want. Here's the subject line. It'll make, you know, just pro Joey. It was a pro Joey podcast. We have much else to talk to other than those two topics though, Bill. So, (laughs) As I said, there were topics that Joey was going to be very versed in. I'd say narrow, but deep. I mean, come on, guys. Narrow, but deep. Narrow, but deep. But he ghosted us. So I'm happy that you didn't. It's good to see that there's one person of the dynamic duo, if you will, who uh, sticks to his priorities and sticks to his commitments. So welcome. You know, unfortunately, in squash, we had a loss in squash, um, a a big loss in squash. James Wilstrop's dad, Malcolm Wilstrop, passed away last week. And although in the United States, maybe um, Mr. Wilstrop's probably not as well known and his impact probably isn't felt as strongly as it is in the UK, PJ. So we we're happy to have you on to maybe talk about that, talk about his impact, some interactions you had with him and just pay tribute to the man. The reaction on social media to his passing was unlike anything I had ever seen for a squash figure passing and have you on to talk about him. Talk about Malcolm Bullstrap's impact on squash in the UK and, and on yourself. And, and maybe you could illuminate to some of our listeners who maybe not know him as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a, a gaping hole that's been left uh, by Malcolm. Um, he was an integral part of uh, squash here in the UK, but primarily in the, the kind of the, the Yorkshire region, the northern region of the country. Malcolm, he passed away at 83 years of age, and I was thinking about this at the time. And I would have to say that he was the most experienced, most knowledgeable coach still around and involved in the game. You can look at the likes of your Jonah Barringtons and your Jeff Hunts and, and people of that kind of ilk who, who played the game to a very high level. But Malcolm, he's produced so many great players for so many generations. You know, his son James obviously was world number one. Lee Beachall came out of that same school. And I, I mean, the list could go on and on and on of the, the players that Malcolm had produced out of the, the Pontefract Squash Club. And he was he was very unique Malcolm, he's not the kind of guy that would, he always done things his own way and he would never the type of coach that would have done well working for a governing body. He always had his own methods and his own style and his his own way of doing things. And I don't feel that the impact of him 
you know, passing has, has quite hit everybody just yet. You know, Malcolm would be down at the club nine o'clock in the morning, pretty much every day in the week. He would have three or four sessions through the day. Players would come in and pay a nominal fee of about, he'd have groups of, you know, he's kind of his beginners, his uh, intermediates, and then his advanced level players. And each player, I think, would play about five pounds for a session um, for like an hour and a half of coaching. And he just completely dedicated his, his entire life to the sport. So I'm actually traveling up to Yorkshire next week and I'm going to pop in uh, to the club over there. But I just know that every single player that he worked with, he will leave a, a really gaping hole. So uh, uh, reading some of the online uh, tributes to him, he came across as being a lovable curmudgeon. Is that accurate? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys in the States have ever heard of Marmite, but it's kind of one of those things. Malcolm, you you either loved him or you hated him. He was one of those people who he very much did things his own way. Very bright, very knowledgeable, very articulate. He always put his point across well and when I went over to watch some of his sessions one thing that really stood out for me the the routines and the exercises that he would have the players doing were they they were absolutely brilliant like pure pure genius really he he always got the players to really think and focus about every single shot that they had to play during that particular drill it's very different from kind of a regular coach where they would stand at the back of the court feeding balls and the player would just get into repetitive hitting. Malcolm was very much more kind of, he made you really think about how you played the game. And that's why if you look at the players that he produced, Lee Beachall, James Wilshrop, known as the marksman, tactically, arguably one of the best players of of the modern game for, for quite some time. And you could see that that was a result of Malcolm's kind of coaching you know Malcolm would do sessions where it would be 15-20 minutes one player would be at the front right hand corner one player at the back right hand corner and it would just be straight drop from the back straight drive from the front never any moving back to the tee there was very little movement involved in those kind of drills and you know as soon as a player would attempt to do that Malcolm was very strict and very firm you know we won't have any of that on the court and it was just a completely different style of coaching to anything that I'd ever seen. Was he but, acerbic in his teaching or was he firm, nice but firm? Or was he a hot guy who screams? Like, How did he get his message across? His man management skills were, again, genius. He knew exactly how to get the best from certain players. He would never tolerate any bad behavior. I saw him on a number of occasions tell players to leave the court because they would get frustrated and smack their racket against the wall or in frustration, maybe hit the ball out of court or their language would be inappropriate. And Malcolm would literally be off court, sin bin. And at times there were stories of certain players that would join in for some of these particular training camps that were were regulars would not be welcomed back in the club until their behaviour changed. And players left the club for weeks and at times more in, into a, you know, a month plus. I know Lee Beecher would be able to confirm that, that we're here. Malcolm had some fallouts where I'm not sure exactly what the situation was that took place, but because of the, the altercation between the both, Lee wasn't welcomed back to train with the team. But another thing that was so brilliant about Malcolm's way of coaching and the drills that he did You could blend different styles of players. And this is a a real, in my opinion, a big problem in the US where a lot of coaches are reluctant and try to veer away from bringing in kind of lower level players with higher level players because they feel that there's going to be a breakdown in the quality of the drill or, you know, certain parents can be a little bit conscious of the fact that their child or their player is on court with a player of a lesser level and it's going to drag their player down. Malcolm never did that. You could have somebody of a... 3.5 or a 4.0 level doing routines and practices with James Wilshrop. It was something that I'd never sort of experienced or witnessed before. But when you saw what he was trying to achieve with those drills, it was just pure brilliance. And did you ever partake in any of this? Were you you ever coached by him? I unfortunately never. I did a couple of national squads when I was a junior and I was probably a little bit too inexperienced to understand just how good Malcolm was at his job. And when I was starting out, also, it was just so alien to any type of coaching that I'd had. So I was 16, 17 years of age going on court. And I I probably, I mean, it's a long time ago, I can't remember the, the actual sessions themselves, but I can imagine I wouldn't have really bought into that style because it would have been very different from what I'd grown up knowing. And Malcolm, I never actually saw him on court feeding balls. 
He oh, was, interesting. He was your quintessential, we call them coffee coaches, where all of Malcolm's, if, if you know, you don't know, but the, the setup at Pontefract Squash Club, it was kind of, there were four glass back courts and there was uh, a seating system which was raised above the courts where, the, where Malcolm would literally perch up in this particular corner where he could oversee all four courts. And he would bark down his instructions and his orders to the courts and he would keep his eye on everything that was going on. Only if there was any problem on the court with a player, would he come down. Then you knew you were in trouble. He would come down and then he would be on the court and dealing with the situation in hand. But it was, a very, again, a very unique style of coaching that I don't think we'll ever see again, unfortunately. I love the term coffee coaches, by the way. That's something I'm going to use in life going forward. And uh, uh, one last question before I before before I let Connor jump in. What, what level player was he? I'm going to have to be honest, Bill. I never saw Malcolm hit a ball, so I, I don't know. But huh, Malcolm, interesting. I never saw him hit a ball. Malcolm's uh, eldest son, Christy Wilstrop, was a very good player around about the, the generation of, he would have been mid to late 70s. So he was a, a lot older than... Malcolm got married a couple of times and had different kids through uh, through different uh, partners. But David Campion, I don't know if you remember the name David Campion. Sure, oh, for sure. David Campion, in my opinion, at 16 years of age, was the, the most talented 16-year-old I'd ever seen in my life. Unfortunately, due to some body issues where he, his body just couldn't really cope with the demands of the game, he, he couldn't make his way into the kind of top ranks but the way David struck a squash ball he's one of the he's got one of the most purest techniques that I've ever seen and then obviously with with James who came on further down the line just three of the players that, that Malcolm had produced but I'd, I'd never really seen him hit the ball so I never knew his level so Connor's a coffee podcaster so he doesn't really come down and ask questions at all he just kind of sits and listens to all this so we're going to see if he wants to jump in here <laughs> Connor? Well, thanks for leaving so many openings there, Bill. Because <laughs> um, I do have a lot of questions. So, are there any sayings that Malcolm would be well known for? What was, what was he famous for? He was a man of simplicity, Connor. And as far as phrases go, there were no kind of, there was nothing in particular that you would jump out that you would associate with Malcolm. But if ever you get the chance, um, and you can look at back at some of the replays. What I loved about Malcolm was just his demeanour and the way he handled his players and dealt with his players. If you ever watch James Wallstrop play, in between games, James Wallstrop very rarely would sit down and James would walk around and Malcolm would kind of follow him. But his spatial, aware, his, his spatial awareness was absolutely on point. He knew exactly when and how to deal with his players. And, and I don't exactly know what he would have said to James, but it was very few words. And I can only imagine that his in-between games talks would have been very similar to his coaching sessions, where his sessions were all about teaching the players how to think on the court. So Malcolm may give a couple of situations during the match for James to think about, and I think that would have been the conversation between the pair of them. But just to watch him interact with James and also when he when he worked with Lee, he was always perfect distance apart and his demeanour was not one of stress. You know, sometimes you see these coaches that are very animated and they're in your face. If you looked at Malcolm, I can imagine as a player, it would just have brought an air of calmness to you in a crisis type situation. But I, I couldn't give you a phrase, Connor, unfortunately, but I just, he would have been absolutely brilliant in between games. You talked a lot about how much of an excellent coach he was, but I wonder if you have to put a, a, a one word or a phrase to his superpower, what, as a coach, what do you think that would be? Simplicity. So and he was able to break it down to. He, he would have an unbelievable, you, you look at the wealth of knowledge that he had. I, I'm not sure what age he, started, he got involved with the game, but as I said to you, there was nobody in the game when Malcolm sadly passed, that had been around as long as he had. Still involved in the game. Jonah's been around, Jeff's been around, but they've kind of taken a back seat per se. Mm -hmm. um, and also uh, Malcolm's older than the, than the pair of those. So he, he would have seen more. And I just think because of the way that his mind worked, he would have spotted something that would have happened on the court and he, he would have dressed it in such a, a simple manner. I, you know, everything that I saw him do when he was at the club, everything about his life really was just very simple. 
I was just astounded by uh, when he passed the amount of uh, the tributes about him in the void that he is going to leave, obviously. Is there anybody uh, that you could compare him to? I mean, in the United States, I can't think of one person not to, who would pass and universally just get praised like that. I don't, I don't see anybody out there in squash Bob right Callahan now. Callahan comes to mind for me when he passed. He, I think similar to what you're saying, PJ, like that was his first job out of college, basically. Yeah. We're very young and he was there for so, such a long period and, and influenced with his camps and through his network hosting the world junior championships, you know? So I think that's when I was the comparison I was making to try and understand the passing that's, that's, that's a reasonable comparison connor um my what i would say is every single person that i ever spoke to about bob callahan loved him dearly malcolm wilstrop as i said at the beginning of the show i was very very fond of malcolm but he would have had people that wouldn't have appreciated the way he went about things you know he was at times confrontational he was at times outspoken it was hard to disagree with any of the things that he said because, as I said, he was a very, very bright guy. But he was almost like he had his lovers and he and he had his haters is a strong word, but he would have had people that wouldn't have been a fan. Detractors, we call them. Detractors. Detractors, there you go. But I never, I've still anybody that uh, had a bad word to say about Bob Callahan, but I, I may be wrong. Is there a story when you think of Malcolm that comes to mind for you that you guys, the two of you, shared together? Yeah, it's not really a it's not really a major story, but Malcolm travelled out when um, David Pearson had been appointed the national coach of the under nineteen boys to go out and play in Cairo in the mid nineties. I think it was around ninety five, ninety six, and Dave Pearson had never really travelled to Egypt before. I. Dave, Dave DP was coaching me at the time and asked me to come out and travel along with the team because I had a bit of experience how life works in Egypt. And Malcolm came along. Um, the first week of the event, it was the individuals. And the the second week, it was the teams. And again, it wasn't much of a story, but Malcolm was looking after Lee Beachill at the time. And Lee Beachill, unfortunately, lost in the semi-finals of that event. And I just remember listening to Malcolm how upset he was with himself with the tactics that he had asked Lee Beachel to implement. He almost blamed himself for Lee Beachel losing that match, which again was such a bizarre thing for me to um, to kind of comprehend. He, he was, the players that he worked with, he, they just had this kind of a bond. It was, it was almost like a father, I and mean, it was in many, you know, with James and, and Christy and David, it was a father-son relationship, but he had the same kind of rapport with a lot of the players that went through that squad. But as far as stories between Malcolm and Malcolm and I always shared a lot of um, conversations about the, the matches that had been taking place at the event when I was doing the broadcasting and the commentary. Never dealt with him as a player so much. But I was just fascinated listening to the way that he would analyse games. It was very unique and, and, and not normal, very simple, but but very, very accurate. When you then think back to what had happened in the match after what he'd said, you're like, bloody hell. Would he be a value added to a PSA squash TV booth, uh, kind of breaking down squash to the person who maybe doesn't know squash as well as uh, as maybe uh, you do? Absolutely. Compelling. Whatever. He was one of those people you were just drawn into to listening. You could, it was the same with Jonah Barrington. It's just, you know, similar with Jeff Hunt. They're, they're these personalities who you know how much knowledge they have, but it's the way they deliver it that right. made it so interesting. And there was right. never a dull moment with Malcolm. He, he was uh, very unique and he was a legend. He's yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I never had the chance to meet him and we certainly appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts about them. Uh, the, the first episode of uh, uh, putting on your PJs, um, hopefully going forward, the episodes uh, will be a bit lighter, but I think it was important based on the amount of notoriety that he had and the um, outpouring of emotion uh, at his passing. So I thought it was important that we acknowledge that and have someone on uh, definitely more learned about this subject than us. So we really appreciate you doing that. You're welcome. I think there's going to be a massive void left up at Pontefract Squash Club. I mean, I'm very close with obviously Lee Beachall and we hear the stories about when James, whenever James is playing or Saurav Gosal was playing. It would be 11 o'clock at night in the US. It'd be at the US Open or the Tournament of Champions. And Pontefract Squash Club would be open. It's 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and it would be a packed-out bar. They would have wow. they would have squash TV broadcast 
on like a screen. Uh, Mick Todd there, who, you know, he, I, I dread to think how Mick's doing at the moment. Um, he's another integral part of the club uh, up there in Pontefract. But he would host these evenings up there where the entire club would be supporting these players on squash TV, you know, and these players have been, Lee Beecher was there from the age of probably about seven or eight years of age. You know, Lee Beecher's uh, kids play down there. And then James had been there since the age of about four or five years of age. So all of the members, it, it was like a real family club there. And now all of a sudden it's just going to be empty. They're going to walk in and, and Malcolm's presence not being felt, you know, with those morning sessions and just him being around the club. It, it will be, I think it'd be really eerie, a really strange atmosphere. That speaks yeah. to the magnitude of his personality for sure. So, uh, Connor, uh, any last words on this? No, just thank you for uh, jumping on, PJ. We look forward to more. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, looking forward to the next uh, Squadcast slash TBD slash uh, putting on your PJs. P-O-Y-P-J. P-O-Y-P-J. Well, we'll workshop that one and see if we can come up with something a little pithier. Thanks all. I appreciate it. And um, uh, good night, Kaylee. Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor. Biosport shoes are designed for racket sport players by racket sports players with the knowledge that if a shoe can withstand the rigors of squash, then it will have no problem holding up for any other indoor court sport. No matter what your sport, the Bia Force X is the performance shoe of choice for competition at the highest level. So it would mean a lot if you go to biasports.us. That's B-I-A sports with an S dot U-S. Check out their website. But even better, take their new Bia Force X for a test drive.